Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. Uh, we've done well over 600 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there are PayPal buttons on the website. And there's also a page about alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Mark Levitt. I've just spent the week listening to or reading all of Mark's three books, which I found very interesting and uh, enjoyable and down to earth and yet really profound. So we'll talk about the content of those books during this interview. Mark sent me a, a fairly long bio, but it's just basically the kind of stuff he's going to be talking about. So I'm just going to let him tell us about himself by way of introduction. So welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate that. And I think uh, you're right about the introduction because the way I introduced myself or I present myself is just as an ordinary person, just like everybody. I never had a, a teacher or a guru, never went to India, never even really got into any particular path except for what I read or read on my own. So the whole reason that I wrote the book was basically just for my own myths, because basically when I was growing up, I had my own myths. This is before the internet. We only had books to go by. So it's easy for someone to just blow everything up in your head to be something mythical and out of this world. I think that's the main thing is, is I always thought anything having to do with mysticism was out of this world. And that's why I really appreciated your comment about the book being down to earth. Yeah. Because that was my attempt. Well, you know, the subtitle of this show is Conversations with Ordinary Spiritually Awakening People. And those words were carefully chosen. The word ordinary is very intentional. And spiritually awakening, as opposed to awakened, was very intentional. I like both of those for that same reason. And the motivation is we don't want people to think that this is something where, you know, you're translucent or you're floating five feet off the ground or something, because then they'll feel like it's never possible for them. Absolutely. And I'm glad you said it. As a matter of fact, the second caption I had in my second book was a picture of a before and after, after my experience. And the one caption of me is before, as me just normal with a normal background. And then the after caption would have been a picture of me glowing with a normal background. That's what I thought after you know my experience would be like. And instead, what it looked like was a before picture of me standing there with a the normal background. But in the after picture, instead of me glowing, me, I was blacked out of the picture and then the world was glowing. So instead, the world was glowing instead of me. So it's really more about a glorification of the world rather than yourself. But also, I really love how you brought back the ordinariness of it. That's, I think, why people get most excited. If you remember in my first book, after I had my biggest awakening, that is the feeling that you get is that you want to tell everybody that this is it. The thing that you're looking for is this. It's not like you're here and then you're going to be someplace else. And when I say that, I don't mean just about that as far as enlightenment or as far as different realizations, but even as far as death, there's no place to go but this. You're here, whether you're dreaming, whether you're having an astral experience, whether you're having a an enlightened experience, whether you're dead in the Bardos, the Bardos, everything that could possibly be is right here, right now. This is it. And when I say this is it, it goes back to what you're talking about, the ordinary reality, 
that we're looking at right now. So I appreciate you saying that. And it's kind of a balancing act in a way, because by ordinary, we don't mean blasé or mundane or insipid or, or anything like that. I mean, as you say, the world can be glowing. It's theoretically possible for the kinds of experiences that Yogananda talked about to happen and the kinds of things that happened to the people he knew. But on the other hand, if we make the whole spiritual thing this otherworldly, super-duper, razzmatazz kind of a thing that, that we don't actually see any examples of in real life, it puts it into fantasy land and it puts it out of reach of the average person. Yeah. Puts it out of reach, Rick. That's absolutely perfect because I think that the reason everybody's talking about it's ordinary is because it's just your mind. This mind, this ordinary mind that we're having this experience with right now, that is the same mind. It's just a matter of whether that mind is moving or whether it's still, whether it's receptive or whether it's active, but it's the same mind. It's not like you're going to suddenly adopt a different mind or take on a different mind after you die or after enlightenment or anything. It's the same mind, just seen from a different perspective. So um, I don't think anybody emphasized the ordinariness of it enough. As a matter of fact, just recently, I've been starting to see that even all my ordinary childhood experiences, I'm starting to see how that everything in my life has been connected to this, to the point that now I feel like what's been in my mind most recently for the last couple of months is either the unborn or prior to birth. Just the fact that we're sandwiched between our, our true existence. Our true existence is who we were before we're born and who we're going to be after we die. So for me, it's been recently coming back to something about the pre-birth or the unborn prior to everything that I think that all the masters are trying to point to is something about being prior to. It's not something that is going to be new. You're going to step into something that is prior to even this, something that's already happening. So it's prior to. And another reason why I like the word prior to is because of what it really points you back to is what all this is about for me. It's about encompassing. So when you recognize something or you awaken, it's encompassing. You're now encompassing something more. So I'm starting to notice that everything that we're talking about, the pointing, the exercises, is about just pointing that you are the encompassing. You are the encompassing of everything. We'll get into that as we talk. Two points on what you just said, so I make sure I understand them. This thing about what you are before you are born and after you die you're that now as well. You don't, yes. obviously there's a, what is that verse in the Gita? The unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. So we're always that, but we just change bodies from time to time. That's the underlying continuum. I like that. A perfect example. I'm always trying to think of symbols for exactly what you're trying to say, for how something is staying the same while another part of it is changing. And the best example I could come up with is the tree. We already have the example of the tree, where if you look at the tree, the actual source of the tree is hidden. That's not seen. All we see is what's on the, the seen half of the tree, and that's the changing half. But what's directing, what's guiding those changes, everything that we see about the tree is really just the fruits, just the effects, just the result of what's really going on, which is the tree, which is the unseen. So basically, and I know the roots do change, so maybe the tree metaphor breaks down at this point, but bringing it back to this metaphor, underneath of this would be the, the foundation would be the unchanging. And there's another aspect of this that's changing, but they're both happening simultaneously. 
And that's what I think is the most important part. There's not a before and after. They're both happening simultaneously. We're just aware of one right now because of the movie mind. But that's why we meditate. That's why we practice stillness. Because when we stillness, that's how we access the aspect that you're talking about. The still part that's always still. The still part that's never moving. And presumably awakened people aren't just aware of one. They're, you said encompassing. One way of understanding that is that the range of our experience expands to incorporate both the unmoving and the moving simultaneously so that we have a larger container, so to speak, in which the full range of creation is. is yes. Left. And for me, the only way that could take place is for you to take aware of awareness. It's by making yourself aware that awareness is taking place in the first place That is what I mean by the backing up, just recognizing that awareness is actually happening. And once you start to become aware that awareness is actually happening, then you could see that all the things that awareness does, let's say like creating identities or creating thoughts or creating feelings of a meaning, that's something that you actually encompass. That's actually something that you're experiencing. You could experience the sense of I as attention. You could experience the sense of identification as a moving. You are the one, when you back up perspective, to see all these movements or dynamics that are taking place in you. Why? Because you encompass them. That's the only reason you'd be able to see them is if you encompass them. And when you say backing up, I've heard you use that phrase a lot. I presume you mean ordinarily the attention is outer directed and we're just not aware of what all is happening behind the scenes, so to speak, because we're always looking out. But what you're advocating or describing is a 180-degree turn of attention where we become aware of the inner values and ultimately the innermost value, which is the self. And then from that perspective, we see the whole range without being oblivious to 95% of it. Exactly. You're taking your actual perspective. Your actual perspective, this is the way I see it. Our actual perspective is further back. We have just focused from life, from everything we're trained to. And by the way, I don't think this is an accident. I think this is exactly the way it's supposed to be. I don't think there's anything going wrong. I think the nature of awareness is we are focused and we're so focused on this that we start to identify with it because that's all you see. With any situation, the more you back up, the more perspective you get. And I just think the human experience or or just the living experience lends itself into being hyper-focused identification. Putting it this way, it's a really intense trick that we pulled off. I'm jumping all around here, but I want to talk about lucid dreaming for a second since we are talking about awakening. When I used to go through a phase where I was practicing lucid dreaming a lot, you could get to a point where you can get too lucid, where you can get so lucid, you're like, well, this is silly. I'm just making things up. I might as well get up and and daydream because this is all this is. It loses the quality of a dream. You have to give up some of your lucidity to go back and actually have the lucid dream be lucid. Because like I said, if it's too lucid, you're seeing the scenes of what would be a dream, but you'd know it too much. And it's like, this is just me daydreaming. This is not a lucid dream. Like if I'm situated and imagine to you, I'm going to imagine myself riding a horse. That's not a lucid dream, but that's how lucid the lucid dreams could get is if you become too lucid. So I found out I had to give up some of my lucidity to experience the dream and find that balance without getting too swept up in the dream and forgetting. So I think that's what the human experience is, is we found ourselves too focused out of fun, out of sheer fun, out of wanting to do this in the first place. 
But just like with Alice in Wonderland, she sought nonsense more than anything. She craved it more than anything. I just want nonsense. I just want nonsense. And once that desire was satiated, no more nonsense. I'm ready to wake up. No more nonsense. And the desire just satiates itself. And you find yourself spontaneously wanting to read books or wanting to do that or maybe meditate, attracted to uh, stillness. But for me, it's all a natural process of winding down that takes us there naturally and effortlessly. Good. There are two or three threads in that that I could pursue, but I think I'm going to let you get back to what you were trying to say a minute ago. You're you're beginning to get into something that happened in your childhood, some experiences. Okay, yeah. It's really just a sense, basically, an overall sense that I feel like I've I've known this my whole life, basically, is what I'm trying to say. I could go back to memories where I'm, uh, I guess, three or four years old and actually playing with my mind and seeing how this works, seeing how choices work, like trying to beat my hand, trying to move my hand without thinking about it first and realizing actually I didn't have the context of free will or choice, but that's what I was playing with. I was playing to see if I had choices of free will. And I remember coming to the conclusion at, I don't know how old I was, but it was preschool age that it doesn't matter whether free will. And like I said, I didn't have the words or the capacity to think free will, but whatever I was trying to play with to think if I had this thing that we call free agency, I remember thinking it doesn't matter because at the end I was like, we have the appearance of it. That doesn't matter. So just make decisions on what you think is going to be the best thing. And then reality will present itself based on that and just trust that. So at a, at even at a young age, I felt like I was trying to understand the gears and the mechanism of our mind and the experience of being alive. Little things like I always felt like we were being watched. Little things like I always felt like this was a dream world and that we'd wake up. It would be like, oh, yeah, that's right. The feeling that I always had from that was this time I don't want to forget. I always had this feeling as this time I don't want to forget. But anyway, the only reason I bring that up is because these are all things that all of us have had, I think, our whole lives. And we just haven't thought about them. We've put them in a box of childhood fantasies or childhood thoughts. But really, that innocence, that beginner's mind has been with us from the beginning. And I think all of us have inklings to our childhood that will connect us to this like I said, the pre-birth part, the unborn part, there's a part of us that we remember we were here before we were born. However you want to put that, reincarnation or not, that's not even relevant. Just the fact that you were prior to birth is this overall baseline. That's what I want to talk about. That's really what I want to start talking about is what we're really talking about is aliveness and awakeness. And we have all these different experiences in our lifetime. We don't have to pontificate or read about mystics in the future. We actually have all these models right here for awakening in our daily experience. For example, every day we know what it's like to awaken. We know what it's like to come to be, to spontaneously rise and just find ourselves here. We know what it's like to awaken. We have that in our brains. We have that in our muscle memory. We know what it's, what's to be awake. I mean, because we wake up every morning. Exactly. Yes. So for you, I don't know when you wake up because you were like working in a sleep lab all night. Ah, that's true. (laughs) I'm constantly waking up. I'm in a constant state of waking up (laughs) and falling asleep. But the main thing is the baseline. The reason that we don't take our dreams seriously, the reason we could so discredit our dreams so easily to the point that sometimes even if you have a really cool dream, you don't even share it. We could dismiss our dreams so easily, even if it's an emotional dream, even if you had a dream that made you cry, you're going to be able to shrug that dream off. However, with this world, even with the most mundane things, being lost in traffic, being late for work, you could feel like the end of the world is about to come, the the seriousness of the world. And why? Because we 
wake up to the same one every day. There's a sense of continuity. There's a sense of that one is not real because it is encompassed by a bigger one. We wake up out of that dream into a bigger dream. So now that therefore makes the other one not important. Right, this so you're one saying is, the nocturnal dreams are illusory or we dismiss them as such, but we take the waking state to be real as compared to the nocturnal dreams. And yet that too is a dream, just a more concrete one. Is that what you're saying? And the reason I'm saying that I'm not just saying it, death says it. We have death staring at our face as the new baseline. So basically we know if you believe in death, if you believe there's a such thing as death, we know that the waking state is not the ultimate baseline, but that is the only reason we give it any more credence than the dreams. We know that dreams are an experience. We know that they're fully experienced. We're dreaming. We're crying. We're having all these emotions. But for some reason, when you wake out of it, it's easy to dismiss the whole thing. Why? Because you woke up out of it. But yet with this world, we know we're going to wake up out of it. We all have dead relatives. We've all been to cemeteries. We know there's death. We know death is a reality. That's the future, which means we're sandwiched between birth and death. We know it ends. So therefore, we know that this world is just like the dream world. So what are we just waiting to wake up and die and say, ah, yes, now I see it all as an illusion. You know it already. We have death in our lives. We have birth in our lives. We have all these experiences in our lives, yet we're somehow to do this cognitive dissonance to where this is the real one. I know I've woke up several times out of many dreams, but this is the real one. To me, it's it's an unnatural inclination to hold on to. Well, I think what makes it seem more real is that it's more concrete, and also there's intersubjective agreement about it. You could have 50,000 people in a baseball stadium and they're all watching the same baseball game. They're not all having individual things like they might have if they all were dreaming. So it seems more objectively real than nocturnal dreams. Absolutely. Absolutely. The only reason I mention that is because these childhood memories, intuitions, let's say, they stuck with me so much that when I got into college, the first thing I did was started to study astronomy because I wanted to know, where are we? What is this place? You know, you're at that age where people are trying to tell you what to do in life. Here's your values. Get a job, get married. Here's your thing. And I'm just thinking before we decide on this, what is this? Where <laughs> are great. we? So I was like, wait, really? We weren't given any instructions. We're just here and no one knows. There's no historical data for why we're here. I mean, just found it so puzzling. We just found ourselves here and no one seems puzzled about it. I, I mean, no, we have religion and we have things, but that doesn't seem like people puzzled. It seems like they're just reporting. Yes, there was a story of the myth and the this and we're reporting the facts, but there didn't seem to be. And of course, I'm young. I didn't realize there was philosophy and Easter philosophy. But for me, with limited knowledge I have, I was like, before I decide to live my life, I want to know what this is, what reality is. So I thought, because like everyone else, I believed in the physical world, study astronomy. What is this? If you want to study this, you study this. So I studied astronomy, but I found out astronomy was a physics class. At least my professor was a physics professor. So I barely passed the class. <laughs> it was not interesting to me because I, I was thinking, I guess, philosophy. I want to know what it is, but there, it was basically a physics class. So that didn't pan out for me. So then I thought, okay, if I can't find out the universe through outer space, what if I look through inner space? And then that's when I got into psychology and started looking into the mind. And then actually, that's when things actually did start to pan. That's when things did start to work because the first thing I discovered was meditation at the age of 19. And that is, I think, is the bedrock for all of this, Rick. Everything that we've talked about and we'll talk about is always going to be centered around stillness. 
simple stillness. And that's why I think for everybody, just meditation, just the fact that we have a still aspect of us, going back to what we were talking about before, there is a still aspect of us that always exists, that has always existed and will always exist. And we are that. That's what we're actually processing from or experiencing from is this unborn awareness. But yet all we see is the reflection of it. It's emanations. Kind of like if you're the sun and you're so far back being the sun, all you see is your emanations. And that's all you see is the sun rays. And so you're thinking that's something different. That's you looking at you. Let me ask a devil's advocate question. That wouldn't be my question, but some people might have it. Some people might say, well, how are you going to understand the universe or what life is all about or anything if you're sitting there with your eyes closed, shutting down your mind, arriving at or trying to arrive at a state of stillness. If you really want to understand, why don't you read the philosophers or study science or like you were doing, you started studying astronomy or study physics. Physics talks about deep fundamental aspects of nature's functioning. How are you going to gain worthwhile knowledge with your eyes closed? I would say they're right. Actually, I would say they're right. The next thing I was going to say is that my spiritual practice was a coupling, a walking, a left foot, right foot approach to either being extremely interested into experiences, which all we've talked about so far, I really promote experiences. For me, everything is about actually experiencing something. So going back to what you're talking about, the person that values more of understanding and actual understanding is going to put experiences more in the subjective corner, which I totally get because I did balance half my life. I was either really into experiences. When I say experiences, meditation, um, I got into the Hemisync. I'm not sure people in your audience, I'm sure they're familiar with the Mineral Institute. Yeah, we should talk about that a little bit. In fact, some guy sent in a question about it already. Basically, what I realized is my mind is the playground. My mind is the reality. If you want to study reality, you have to study the mind. I realized my mind is the playground. So all I did was just constantly study the mind. And so all these different tools would come in, like the Mineral Institute, these Hemisync tapes, out-of-body experiences, salvia divinorum, lucid dreaming, as I mentioned, all these powerful Salvia things. is a hallucinogen of some kind? If you would consider ayahuasca hallucinogen, it's more like that. Okay. It's something that's experienced for five minutes and then it's done, but it would be basically they being dropped at the top of an ayahuasca experience for five minutes and then it's done. So it's not classified as a hallucinogen, but generally speaking, yes. So you were just a secret. <clears throat> it's cool. I, just, I don't want to have you lose your train of thought, but I admire and uh, appreciate the fact that you had such an ardent interest in understanding what's what from an early age and you stuck with it. I think, like you said, why doesn't everybody have this interest? Why do we just take for granted that whatever we're told is, is the way it is and we should just get a job and you know, live life without really understanding what the heck we're here for? Why did we get here? What are we supposed to do? What's the ultimate goal yeah. of life? I mean, is it mm-hmm. just, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins? You know, it's interesting. Now I'm going through a phase where I'm looking at those people as actually being stronger than me, that they're actually stronger because now I'm starting to look at myself as like a baby now who couldn't handle anything. And that's why I sought out enlightenment. Like we came into this for a reason, Rick. We explored this for a reason. We are unbounded, pure awareness. And out of our infinite freedom, this spontaneously manifested where we can have these, these limits and these laws where we can have this experience. And it's just ironic that once we find ourselves on this side, all we want to do is get back to spaciousness and no laws and no form and anything like that. So for me, it's almost like you're ruining the dream. Like you came in here to dream and you're ruining it by waking up. I mean, I know that's not true. I know that's natural that we do that. But I'm just looking now as people who are 
just extremely brave, I guess is the best way I could say it. Yeah. I suppose you're saying that because they have to go through life thinking that their fulfillment is actually going to come from the things that they experience outwardly. <laughs> and in fact, those things are never ultimately gratifying or yeah. fulfilling. And yes. so what a burden to carry. Whereas we have sort of the cheat sheet of being, being able to tap into inner fulfillment, which is actually fulfilling. Yeah. And the, the outer stuff is more like icing on the cake. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think you could not have said it better. But I don't want to forget your friend's question about the Minor Institute because Go for it. that's where actually everything started. Everything started after the Minor Institute. So leading up to the Minor Institute, like I said, for my understanding, I was really interested in pretty much just Zen and Dzogchen. I don't have a wide variety of philosophy, Eastern philosophy. I was like a magnet. I knew exactly what I knew in Eastern philosophy. And I zeroed in on, on Zen specifically and Dzogchen, which is just Tibetan Buddhism that's extremely close to Zen, pretty much a mind-only school of Buddhism. So taking that into context, I discovered the Monroe Institute tapes. Uh, and basically, for anybody that doesn't know, it's a sound technology where they induce one frequency in one ear, a different frequency in the other ear, and your brain has to make the difference between the two. So it creates a, a beat frequency or a binaural frequency, and it creates an experience based on whatever frequencies you're using. My wife uses these every day for catnappers. When we had our daughter, we would put a super sleeper on for her every day. You could use it for meditation. You could use it for lucid dreaming. You could use it to quit smoking. They use these to die. For anybody who knows the Monroe Institute things, people use these tapes to go to what the Buddhists would call the bardos. In the Monroe Institute, they call them focus levels, but it's basically the after death where you get to do soul retrievals and all these different things. And I don't want to get too far off track, but basically... But you had some um, really cool experiences. At them. And you, you described it in quite some detail in your book. You got really deep. It made me feel like going there when I was reading your book. And oh. the, the thing about the Monroe Institute and the kinds of experiences you were having were pretty cool. Yes. And I will say that everybody's experience is going to be based on you because it's your mind. Just like if anybody has an ayahuasca experience, it's going to be different because it's your mind. All these things are your mind. And even Robert Monroe would say, these tapes are not the magic. Your mind is the magic. I was in a room. I was in a participant of 25 people. No one had the experiences I did because no one had the background I did. They had the experiences that were appropriate to them. But it's basically your mind coming undone, coming unfurled. But anyway, the reason I do want to value and point out what the Minner Institute taught me was that everything's the imagination. Kind of like what I said before about how whether you're dead or whether you're enlightened or whether you're not enlightened or whether you're dreaming, it's all the same mind. I look at it as like an etch-a-sketch. All there is in reality is an etch-a-sketch. And the nature of the etch-a-sketch is to move and to draw itself. And it's constantly drawing itself. It could draw itself as heaven. It could draw itself as earth. It could draw itself as dreaming. But all there is is the one spacious space where all happens, whether it's nirvana, whether it's happened, whether it's borders. There's just this aware space that all these things are happening. And at the Minner Institute, at least that's what I learned from my experience that I was just awareness and all these experiences were in my mind. But bringing this back to the book and our talk, this all starts with when I came back from the Monroe Institute, it was a particular program we're learning about guidance, where we're learning to access a higher aspect of yourself. And like I said, everybody is going to see this through their own lens. You've heard the expression, we don't see the world as it is, we see it as we are. I see, think that goes with everything. Enlightenment, you don't see enlightenment as it is, you see enlightenment as you are. 
you don't see God as it is. You see God as you are. What I realized in this experience is that everything that we're experiencing is based on our base. It's based on your heart. What your heart is, what your essence is, the way you actually experience the world, that's what you're going to um, attract to you. So for me, guidance was not a guide, not something external, but just guidance. It was me. There was just guidance. So some people would actually see a guide, you know, maybe it was one of your old dogs or something like that. But for me, there was only guidance. So as I practiced guidance, I noticed that I was having this experience where I was popping back behind me. And I think that's where I got the whole practice I described earlier about the backing up. I kept noticing this unique state was just behind me as if I was popping up just behind my head and I was seeing myself from this kind of this detached state. So one day after I came back from the Institute, I'm playing around with that feeling. I'm just playing around going back and forth between backing up and noticing. That's the whole thing, Rick, is I really think it's just about noticing you're already back here. You're already back here as the stillness. As the stillness, we're so close to everything. We feel like we're the moving, but you're actually not. You're actually the stillness experiencing the moving, and you're just so close to it. It's natural. It's inevitable that you take yourself to be the moving. It's just inevitable. But you can have these experiences through stillness that put things into context, that give you um, a context, a, a backdrop. Before I get into this, the reason I call these visions is because I did have a lot of non-ordinary experiences but four of them stood out because I had nothing in my context for reality to explain these. And what I mean by that, these were I, all four of these, what I call visions, where I was living my normal life. I'm with my wife. I'm with my daughter. I walk into the car. And all of a sudden, what I'm looking at is overlaid or not over it's overlaid, almost as if it gives way to show that that it was an overlay for something underneath, almost as if in the background, I could see the rest of the world, but in the center of my vision, I could see what's underneath of what we're looking at. Almost as if I'm looking at you and all of a sudden your face would yield to just white light, but I see the rounding. I see what's really there is just white light. So the first experience I had like that with, with the vision, as I call it, I got back from the Moon Institute. I'm playing in my kitchen and I'm just looking at the kitchen, absentmindedly. And next thing you know, I'm staring at what was the refrigerator just became an ocean, just an infinite ocean. And I just knew that I was being shown that it was the universe, that this is reality, just an infinite ocean. And then my perspective was taking in, or maybe just the ocean revealed itself to be all drops. So now I'm seeing that same ocean, but drops. And it was going back and forth, the ocean and then the drops. And I just saw instantly that, oh, I get it. We are both things. We are the ocean. And then we're also the drops. And the vision I get from that, because I know that's not anything anybody's never heard, the ocean and the waves. But the specific feeling I got from that is picture the eyeball as an all-seer. The actual physical eyeball is now seer. Now just imagine someone taking a screen like a lattice screen with squares on it. And they take it over the eyeball and they start squeezing on it. So the eyeballs start pressing out from one of those screens, from all those screens. Now you have infinite eyeballs. So it's the same eyeball, but if you're to squeeze it with that screen or press it through a screen, now you get the same eyeball pushed through and you have eight eyeballs. So that's what I felt like it was showing me. It's one ocean, but they're particles. And you keep looking back and forth. It's like it's a screen. Like a screen was just pressed. So all there was is uniform water. And as if someone took a screen and put it on the water, and now you could see, like I said, if you were to take a screen over an eyeball, I know it's a gross visual, but just take a, a visual of an eyeball and someone squeezing it to where now the eyeball is protruding in 16 different ways. That's what I felt like I was being shown. It's the same thing, 
different perspective. Are you trying to say that what you were seeing was that everything is oneness, but then individuation percolates up out of the oneness? Is that what you're trying Naturally. to say or am I missing it? No, you got it. And it's natural and it's spontaneous. And it can't be no other way, Rick. So you're kind That's of seeing the, the one and the many simultaneously or oscillating back and forth between the ones. And they're the same thing. They're the same thing. They're identically the same thing. And it's its nature is to do that. The ocean cannot be a wave. There's no such. If everyone's thinking they're going to get to a point where there's just an ocean and that's it, the ocean is going to be a wave. And going back to what you're saying, the ocean is so deep, there's a part of it that's always still. Even though part of it's waving, there's a part of the ocean that's always still, but there's a part of it that's also waving. That's the analogy that I think that you were talking about earlier. Sure. And it's right here. I mean, it's not like if we look at something such as, I don't know, this book, and then what physics tells us about this book, when we go down to the molecular and the atomic and the subatomic, and basically this book is empty space, but on some level, that's what it is, if we could see it microscopically enough. But on this level, on the level of human experience, it's solid. It doesn't appear to be empty. And both realities have their credence you know both are relevant and legitimate and you can't say well it's only empty space there is no book you could say that and there are scriptures which do say that but in the same breath you have to say yeah but i want to get to that as a matter of fact i will kind of skip ahead for a second i was thinking about that because like i said now i'm listening to these teachings all day long and i noticed depending upon whether you're listening to hinduism or buddhism between the two, you're either going to hear that everything is either empty or everything is all awareness. The reason I love Shen so much is because they'll never, ever say the word emptiness without the word clarity. It's always the inseparability of emptiness and clarity. And clarity and, um, means what in that context? Oh, uh, clarity, could it's just another, they don't want to quite yet say awareness yet. Because to say awareness is a little bit too much. Because when we talk about awareness, it's almost like we want to jump to consciousness, being aware of so I noticed when they're really describing the very subtlest essence of reality, when we're looking for our most basic, basic experience, you don't even want to say aware yet. You want to go just a little bit more subtle than aware, and, and you start. You want to use words like cognizant or lucent or wakefulness or something. So the most general word that they use in Zogchen is just clarity. It's the inseparability of the clarity in space that gives rise to what we call you know, awareness, but Clarity could also be the awareness aspect of it. Like I said, there's so many different religions and backgrounds that, as you know, we can't cling to any of these words because they're based on the cultures that they came from. Vedanta has a handy term in this context, which is vyavaharika sakyam, which means transactional reality. And sometimes also called mitya. They use analogies like, you know, you come into a room full of pots and they're basically made of clay. You could say, and you wouldn't be wrong, that there's nothing in this room but clay, but it wouldn't be the full truth because obviously there are pots and they can be used for holding beans or water. It's clay as pots. Yeah. That's the whole thing. We're going to keep coming but back to that. But it's not just clay. It's clay it's as pots. It's clay so. as <laughs> pots. You can't have just clay. There can be a big pile of clay. So a good picture of this would be a big pile of clay. And out of that big pile of clay is coming a perfectly formed pot but it's still connected to that clay. So that would be a good symbol of what we're talking about. There's just clay, but this is clay as a pot. It could be clay as a spoon. So that would be a good analogy just to show clay and then show clay forming itself. That's its natural, that's its natural process is to form itself. Take your daughter, for instance. You could have jars on a table that contain all the chemicals that make up your daughter. 
But you wouldn't just say, well, that's my daughter, because obviously <laughs> the arrangement of those chemicals imbued with life is something very different than just yeah. its component parts. So you, you just have to sort of keep playing this dance where you respect all levels of reality. Yes, that's exactly all of it. You just said it, Rick, all of it everything. And that's the other thing too. I'm just going to briefly say, you know, when people want to dismiss this world as a dream or an illusion, what else do you got? This is it. This is what the imagination does. All there is is imagination. If you're expecting to go to a rock solid reality where there's God and the Buddha and they're sitting, there's like, nope, the dream's done. This is real, real rock solid. No, all we have is imagination. So if you want to degrade the world by calling it an illusion, then you just don't understand what illusion is because illusion is all, imagination is all we have. This is it. So illusory is not a denigrating thing to me. It's just more of an impersonal descriptive. I actually, it's, I guess really we use it to describe a misperception if we use the word illusion because we're misperceiving what it is. That's a good way of putting it. Just um, throw in one more quote and I'll be quiet. Since you used the word imagination, Shankara used a nice phrase, which he said, the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. I love it. I think in the Buddhist, that's what the Bodhisattva valid is. And I think all they're saying, all these personifications are our natural instinct because we're aware we exist almost out of compassion. We're, we're here almost because we just can't help it. We just can't help it. It's inevitable. And what I mean by that is that in reality, all there is, is, as you said, just unbounded aliveness. There's space and there's the inseparability of space and awareness and that unboundedness of it expresses itself as freedom. So aware space version of freedom is activity. It's complete space that has the freedom to act and to move. And we are the activity. All we're experiencing is activity. Going back to the Etch-A-Sketch, just picture space as the Etch-A-Sketch itself and the aware part of aware space as that little mover in the Etch-A-Sketch. It's the inseparability. It's always going to be moving. It's always going to be constant painting pictures. So the aware space is always going to be showing pictures of whether it's heaven, whether it's hell, whether it's a dream. It has no choice but to move and show you something because that's its nature. It's energy. It's aliveness. It's not dead. It's alive in their space, the inseparability of the two. Boom. We have all this incredible freedom, all this incredible appearances. And as appearances, all we want to do is end them. All I want to do is stop the appearances. No more. I just want space. I just want empty space. You are empty space. Get in the freedom that you have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that attitude implies that the universe is a mistake or an accident. And exactly. We it's get inevitable. out of it as quickly as possible. And, and some people have that attitude. But to me, that's sort of an insult to God. I agree. Like he didn't know I what agree. he was doing. And, and Absolutely. Thing is- <laughs> but I don't think that, you know, and I know you don't either, that God didn't do anything. I think this is inevitable. And just the nature of what it is. It all takes place inevitably out of the nature of what it is, because what is it? It's awareness. All we're talking about is awareness. And once you acknowledge awareness, everything becomes inevitable. What is awareness? Awareness is to be aware. What is there to be aware of? There's nothing but awareness. So awareness has no choice but to become aware of itself. And that's why we riddle ourselves with a beginning and a big bang. There is no beginning. There is no beginning. There's awareness aware of itself. Now, here's the other cool thing, though. When I experienced this, when I saw this, I saw it as a sphere. So basically, the way I've gotten any of these visions is basically just contemplating my basic experience. Just always, what is this? What is my basic experience underneath everything? You could call it the mind. You could call it reality. You can call it the I. You can call it the self. But what is this? What is the basic experience? And as I looked for the basic experience... 
it shows itself as what you are prior to anything. And that's why we can't talk about it. That's why we have all these words to try to describe something that's impossible because it's essence, because it's not actually real. We're here in the, in the real of the externalized, but what we're talking about is pure essence. And so it's not actual. It's not externalized. We are the externalized. So what we do is we project. We can't help but to project. So all there is is aware space, but when aware space becomes aware of itself, the way I saw it is it invaginates in it on itself. So awareness actually implodes on itself like a black hole to become aware of itself. What I noticed was all you have is aware space. And so when aware space contracts in itself, it's experienced externalized. So now you have awareness as individual lives. And now you have space as almost like a physical space. So the world that we're looking in, we call it space, time, matter, but it's an externalization of what the real reality is, which is just pure aware space. So as that is invaginated inward, so the universe, so when I saw this expanding, so basically all there is is awareness and space and the inseparability of them makes it expand. But we think of expansion as going outwards. And what I saw was it's actually expanding inwards. It's expanding inwards. And so your experience is kind of like a black hole where everything that you're seeing is you bent over looking at you as something else. And so what you were just saying there, are you explaining the mechanics of creation in terms of consciousness as the fundamental reality, becoming aware of itself and setting up a triune or threefold structure in so doing, and then this giving rise to material creation? Or were you actually talking about something else? No, I think that is it. I think the essence is that. To answer your question, I'd say the triune that you're talking about is inevitable because of the essence of what it is, is awareness, and the nature of it is to be attracted to itself. And out of that, you're naturally going to have an emergence of a third thing. The best way to show this is on the cover of my third book. If you take the one, have these sticks on your book. So if you imagine the stick as the one, so that all there is is awareness. The nature of awareness is to become attracted to itself. So that stick would find itself bending towards itself. And as it's finding itself bending towards itself, that friction, that intensity of the of the attraction would spontaneously cause the fire from within that was already there for the stick to manifest as fire. And the reason I think that's important is because it shows the fire was already there. When the fire emerges, it actually eclipses the stick and the rubbing. You don't see the stick and you don't see the rubbing. We don't see awareness and we don't see space. All we see is the result of the inseparability of aware space, which is these colors, which is this myriad of forms. And what do we call this myriad of forms? We call it space-time matter. That's what we call it. We think we're living in space, but it's an externalization of the actual space, of the great space that everything exists in. It's a, it's a physical space that's a reflection of the actual space and what exists in the space. Life matters. All it is is just organic matters, organic matters, because what is that? That's a reflection of what it actually is, which is pure awareness. So you have pure aware space externalized, and it appears as you have a physical space and physical life beings separated and interacting with each other when that's actually what it is, but a reflection of the reality, what it truly is, which is just pure aware space turned on itself, experiencing itself as physical space and physical matter. 
I'll give the perfect example for the triune that, that I really rely on, the classic prism. When you have the light shining through the actual prism, and on the other side, it comes out white light. It's the same thing on both sides, whether you have white light or whether you have the color, the color still is the white light. It never stopped being white light. The essence of the rainbow is white light. It just appears as color. So you're not going to change the rainbow into a white light. You're just going to perceive the rainbow to perceive it as it is, which is actually white light. So there's not two different things. We don't have a rainbow and a white light. There is just white light. But when that white light is bent, it appears as a rainbow. But as we know, that's what I'm saying. We have these experiences. We have these things to rely on how we know how something could appear to be something, but we know it's not that. We have this in our, in our muscle memory. So what you're saying here, everybody who is listening to this interview has heard statements like it's all consciousness, you know, or it's all Brahman or it's all being and so on. It just appears as physicality. Everyone's heard people or books say that kind of thing. What you're trying to describe are the mechanics through which this appearance arises and those mechanics being what we might call the self-interacting dynamics of consciousness. So there's this fundamental field of consciousness. Its nature is to be conscious. There's nothing for it to be conscious of at that level other than itself. So it becomes conscious of itself. And in doing that, it sets up this threefold structure of observer, observed, and process of observation or knower, known, and process of knowing. And that threefold structure gives rise to the whole appearance of physicality, materiality, the physical universe. That's what you're attempting to explain here. Yes. And a further point that the world that is created out of it. So let's take the example of the rainbow. The rainbow, which is, let's say, the child. So let's say the parents are the white light and the bending. Those are the parents. The emergence from the attraction, the attraction of the white light to the bending, the inseparability, that's the whole thing too. I don't use the word union or anything like that. Everything is inseparable from the very beginning. So the inseparability of the light and the bending spontaneously and necessarily manifest as a rainbow. And once you see the rainbow, you don't see the parents anymore. You don't see the white light and you don't see the bending. All you see is rainbow. And that's the situation we're in now where the more famous metaphor for that is the ocean and the waves. The ocean is what everyone's trying to achieve. That's the oneness. That's the placid, perfect ocean. But all we see is the waves. We can't see the oneness. All we see is waves, 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 waves. But yeah, they're the same thing. Yeah, and then the old movie screen analogy too. You, you go to the movies, you don't go to see the screen, you go see the movies. Nah, <laughs> but, I like but that. you wouldn't be seeing the, the movies if that screen weren't underlying the, the space. The, exactly. Right. And that's all there is, just the space and awareness. And everything that we're experiencing is just the interaction of the, the space and awareness showing us what we're experiencing now, which, like you said, is the experience of being, is the experience of being a, a perceiver of a something that is the result of this dynamic. It's yeah. not a mistake. It's actually the result of it. Now, in a way, you know, you go to see the movie, but you don't really want to be in the middle of a war or a car crash or have robbers chasing you or anything like the kinds of things that are in movies. You go knowing that it's safe to be there because it's really only a movie. And we were talking about that before, how you were saying it people who don't get that it's just a movie and that there's an underlying screen are the brave ones because they really think that they're in the middle of a war. Exactly. They don't realize that it's just a movie. You can pull your safety shoot anytime you want. Just remember. Yeah, you can, you can <laughs> Which is cheating. Like, the it's so fun. It gets too scary. <laughs> 
so that's the advantage, I think, of spiritual awakening. One of the many advantages is that it enables us to have much greater equanimity in dealing with the vicissitudes of life. Yeah, I, I think equanimity absolutely is perfect just because going back to the rainbow analogy, you do see, even though that we have all these varieties between red, orange, and yellow, they are equal. They're all white light. The orange is white light. The pink is white light. The blue is white light. That's their equalness. There's diversity, but they're equal in their essence and what they actually are, not their appearance. Now, a few minutes ago, you were about to tell us you had four different experiences that yes. happened after Monroe Institute. And I don't know how many of those we actually got in. Did you want to loop back to some of that? Thank you. I, I was just about to go there. So the first one was just the simple vision of me coming back from Monroe Institute and being shown the contrast of the water, the ocean, and then the particles, just the ocean and the particles, the one and the many. After that, the second experience happened a few months later, and this was the first like really jarring one. Prior to this point in my life, any of the non-ordinary experiences I had, I could have just dismissed meditations or I was at the Monroe Institute or I was doing a tape and, and that could explain a non-ordinary experience. But the following experience I'm going to explain, there was no context for it. I wasn't meditating. I, I was in my living room playing the guitar to George Harrison's My Sweet Lord. And I was just feeling all this love and all this devotion to reality, just this upswelling of love to reality and just feeling. And the song, anyone's listening to um, My Sweet Lord, it's a song about longing, longing to be with God and longing to be back with God. And why does it take so long? It's just this feeling of just longing. So I'm feeling this gratitude and this devotion to God, reality, the Supreme Source, just feeling this incredible devotion and, and gratitude. And then right in the middle, I'm in the peak of this gratitude, this upswelling of joy. I heard a voice that spontaneously said, look behind you. And I did. As I'm playing my guitar, I looked behind me. But now when I look behind me, I'll see my wall. But in that moment, when I looked behind me, I saw the void. I didn't see behind me. There was absolutely nothing behind me. And in front of me was still the world but the world was now at a distance, I don't know, just a few feet, but just enough to show that there was a gap between me and the world. And just the seeing of it, you recognize exactly what it is for what it is. You're staring at a screen. Just by backing it up, just by having what we see backed up, you say, oh my gosh, my living room and everything I've been seeing my whole life has just been a screen. And I just kept going back and forth between looking at that, gawking, at my world, that uh, the whole world I put treasure in, my wife's upstairs with my baby, that's on the screen. It's all on a screen in front of me. So I'm going back and forth and looking at that and then looking behind me and just void. There's just absolutely nothing behind me. And so I go back and forth between writing all this down. I'm writing all this down. I'm looking in front of me and I just can't stop the void behind me. It's like there's a void always stuck behind her back. Like we're always experiencing the void. And now actually I want to go to uh, the share screen thing we talked about because in the second book cover, I actually use something like that for the book cover to show that. So let me share the screen of what I mean by seeing behind me. This is what the experience would be like. Everything that we see in the world, it seems like we're in it. But in reality, what I saw is we're just, our faces are smushed up to a screen 
and there's nothing behind us. Our faces are smushed up so close to a screen that we feel like we're inside the world. We feel like we're one of those people when we're inside the world, but we're not. We're perfectly still. We've always been perfectly still. Like we're in a virtual reality, just always still and just watching the world. And as you described, watching different worlds come and go. Like the TV screen. Uh, after you die, something different's going to pop up. When you go to sleep, something different pops up. If you go through a profound experience, if you go through any type of life change, your scene's going to change. Your world's going to change. You're going to introduce new characters into your life. You're going to draw new places into your life. As you change, your scene changes, your reality changes based on your heart, based on your essence. So as you change your recognition, your perception, the way you see the world changes, your actual physical world changes because you're the creator of that world. So you're going to create different people, different essences, different vibrations, different scenes, different places, the whole different world based on your heart, your essence. That book cover you just showed and the point you just made, are you saying essentially that whereas most people (laughs) think of themselves as this body, I am this body and I am in the world. I'm moving around. I'm going here. I'm going there. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Whereas you're saying that once you step back far enough and know yourself to be the vastness or the void or whatever word we want to use, then the orientation flips such that you realize that this body and this world and everything that exists is within me. I'm not within it. It's within me. Yes. Is that what you're getting at? Absolutely. 100%. But the thing, the thing about it, Rick, though, was the realness of it. It was not a concept. I couldn't tell anybody about it. It was literally like seeing a UFO. Because when I go tell you, let's say I tell you I saw a UFO, I'm now actually intruding upon your reality. Because I don't know how you philosophically feel about UFOs. If no, you I'd love to hear about it if you've seen one. <laughs> I want to know. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. But it's a heavy thing to put on somebody. I, I, was, I didn't tell anybody. I'd say, by the way, None of this is real. We're all smushed up against the screen, experiencing reality, and we're on a virtual reality. We're all inside of a virtual reality, and none of this is real. I didn't have the inclination to share that at all. I didn't have the slightest inclination to share that at all. You should have been playing Strawberry Fields Forever instead of My Sweet Lord, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Nothing is real. Nothing to get. (laughs) But what it did was, is it just emphasized the void. I just saw the void as my true home. I was like, oh my God, that's what we actually are. We really are the void. This is our reality. This is the unchanging. The unchanging is the void and what we're seeing changes. And that was profound because that now shaped my practice to be based on that. And what I found was once I had that experience, when I started to look at the experience, I revisited the spiritual path, revisited all the books, the books I was reading. And I realized all the books, at least that I was reading, they're leading us towards death. They're leading us to kill ourselves. Now, we call that egolessness or, you know, they're trying to shrink your ego. But really what it feels like, it feels like you're being suffocated. It feels like what I described as like a suicide mission. When you practice spirituality and you want to yield yourself to more of what is and not try to insert yourself and try to um, move things or steer things or find yourself trying to control the world, it feels like suicide. To let yourself be, to to let yourself be without, how do I say this, reminding yourself that you are or creating yourself every second by saying I I am and by am doing this. To not do that is to starve yourself. We don't realize that, but to keep this, and I don't even want to say the word facade, but to keep this appearance of you being limited 
it takes a lot of work. You constantly have to talk to yourself. You constantly have to think about, you constantly have to um, create what I call a stick man. The way I look at it is we create a stick man with our thoughts. I'm Mark and there's an arm and I like to do this. There's a leg. And the more thoughts you have mirroring each other, the more that stick man becomes real. And now he's got eyeballs and now he's got a nose and he's got the, the more of these thoughts that could come together that you're believing them, you're building a stick man. And all the practice is, is to stop building the stick man, to don't invest in the stick man, to trust the void, to trust the empty space, to trust your silence, to trust your stillness, and to stop building your thoughts, to stop continuing your thoughts of building this idea of, yes, I'm doing. So you're watching your thoughts and you're realizing I'm creating myself constantly. I'm in my head, constantly creating myself. I wish I did this. I wish I did that. I'm doing this. And what I found was the suicide mission was to stop all that, basically to go backwards and to not put all that energy into creating a sense of self and to feel free to just let it hang in space, to just be without you trying to pin it down and hold it and um, maintain it. You know, it comes to mind as you say that is those couple of verses in the Yoga Sutras where, I mean, what you're saying essentially is that there's a constant state of excitation, which keeps us manifest, which keeps yes. us individuated. Those verses in the Yoga Sutras are the second verse in the first chapter is yoga, which means just basically union or falling back into the void. Yoga is the cessation of those fluctuations. It's the settling down or quietening <sighs> down of those fluctuations. That's the second verse. Then the third verse is, then you rest in the self. I love it. I've never yeah. heard that, but I love it. And that just reminds me, okay, now you're getting to the actually what was the essence of my understanding. So remember I said I was doing two different things. One, I was working with actual experiences, whether they be meditation, Monroe Institute, lucid dreaming, some type of actual experience. And the other part was understanding. The part that I was doing the understanding on was the Buddhist part. So it's a lot about death, everything, you know, the Tibetan book of the dead, where the Buddhists look at life as a preparation for death. And also the Monroe Institute does. So all of my experiences at the Monroe Institute or with Buddhism or even when I was a childhood, knowing that death would be the next baseline, that we think that waking is the real baseline. I knew that death was the actual baseline, and this was a dream to death. So you have a dream, then you have waking, then you have death. That's just a baseline to waking, just like waking is a baseline to dreaming. So I knew that death was the bigger baseline, the more encompassing baseline of what we come from. So my attitude of all the sutras, of everything that I read, the reason I like Zogchen was there was one particular sutra that one sentence and it just stuck out. It's called the king that created everything. So the king that created everything is the supreme source. And the supreme source is the mind. And so basically the highest, highest essence is to recognize that all there is is mind. And anything that exists is imaginations of the mind. So therefore, whatever you see, you have to recognize it as an emanation of you as mind. So basically the practice for death is... To acknowledge this, to acknowledge what you truly are is awareness. So upon death, that when you get the visions, when you're swept up into the bardas and all the visions appear themselves, and you're going to get seduced by all the different things that could be, hey, come over to this bard and we'll show you the secret to the universe. Come over here and we'll do this. Whatever the thing is. <laughs> There's a bunch of you, recruiters there on the other side. <laughs> yeah, it's seducers, like yes. There. <laughs> but it's your mind. But it's your mind coming undone, Rick. It's your mind coming undone, all your fantasies. Hey, we can finally have it. We can know the secret to the universe. We can have all of your pleasurable desires, whatever. It's your mind coming undone and your mind knows you more than anything. And you're going to get 
seduced by all these things. And what you have to do, the practices, is to remain aware of your true self as just awareness. So every single vision that appears before you, you'll recognize it as an emanation of yourself. You're not going to believe it as an external reality. You're going to recognize it as an emanation of yourself, that no matter what appears before you, the greatest joys, the greatest heavens, you have to recognize that it's mine. All there is is mine, and this is an emanation of mine, and I'm not going to I'm not going to believe it. That's the whole thing is you can't get into the thing where I believe this, and now that becomes the reality. That's how the bardas turn into the next life. Whatever you believe, there you are. So you're saying that if, if you're so well established that you don't believe it when you die, then you won't be reborn? Is that the idea? I think so, and I don't know that for sure. It could be. I'll go back and forth on this. For one part, overall, I think there's inevitability in this. I don't think there's never an end. So there's always going to be existence. So on that level, it doesn't make any sense for this to be an end. But I think there's the appearance of that. And what I mean by that is let's just take even the concept of enlightenment. We could look at enlightenment as simply just waking up and knowing who you truly are, waking up as your true self. Or you could look at enlightenment as the highest, highest, highest enlightenment, like in Dzogchen, they look at it as totally waking up. So anybody that's on earth talking, me, you, Rana Maharshi, anybody, they're on earth, they're talking. So the best that you could say is that they're lucid dreamers. They're dreaming and they know that they're dreaming and they're in the dream. Waking up, waking up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. That looks like their rainbow body. That looks like poof, nothing. I don't know if anybody knows what the rainbow body is, but in Shen, the highest awakening would be where your body actually disappears. Your body actually transforms into a rainbow. So if we hold that as the truest waking up, then we'll know that every other waking up is put into that context, that there's always more to wake up into. There's always more. There's always waking up. Basically, that's why I said we need to look at enlightenment or awakening more of like lucid dreamers. We know that we're dreaming. We know this is a dream, but yet we're in the dream. You're continuing to be dreaming. I think that there is, and like I said, the rainbow masters are an example of someone that wakes up to the point, boom, no more dream, body done. But just to put that in the context, Rick, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not interested in that. I have no interest in the rainbow body. I'm more interested in the bodhisattva vow. I'm more interested in being in service to people. So that's why I hesitate to say that I think it's possible to wake up and boom, everything be done, final enlightenment, even though we have the rainbow body. That could still just be another thing to where, boom, it's a whole other level we can't conceive of. So that's why I'm saying I got two things in in my mind that I'm trying to balance. One is that there is like awakening, awakening where, boom, your body even blasts off and disintegrates. And also the fact that it doesn't ever end. So I'm, I'm trying to hold those two things together. Yeah, I'm kind of on the same track as you. And my attitude is let thy will be done. I feel there's some higher intelligence orchestrating things. And when I die, or even while I'm alive, it's it's like a guiding light. But when I die, it's like, all right, use me. Yes. What do you want me to do? So I stay here. Should I go to this locus? Yes. Should I get, go back to earth? Whatever you say, you know. You know exactly. But, uh, that's, that's my attitude. Mine I too. Be of value. That's the Bodhisattva vow. And by the way, I think we make up all these things. I think the Bodhisattva vow, I think all these things are made up. I think they're intrinsic in the nature of the original dynamic that we described, that all there is awareness and the nature of awareness is to become aware. And that's why we have the Bodhisattva vow. The Bodhisattva vow, I experienced it myself. When I started, like I said, 
I barely read any Buddhist books. I was only attracted to the highest of highest of teachings. Like I had a magnet. I would not read anything that was like the, the highest of all, all the teachings. So after you do this, it becomes, and this is why, by the way, I think the Mahayana path and the Dzogchen path came to beginning because the Buddha taught enlightenment. And so we practice enlightenment. We do it for ourselves. Let's just say we were, we're suffering. We just want to get out of it. We do it for ourselves. But somewhere in nature, we realize it's not for yourself. It's for everyone because you are everyone. There's not you. You're not separate from the world. There's no such thing as enlightened you and the rest of the world that's unawakened. And so after a bit of time, if you do experience an awakening, It'll become like, let's say, constipation, where all that bliss and all that bliss stops at you, and it becomes like a constipation, and people can experience it energetically as all these different phenomena, but basically, this energy wants to go through you. It wants to come past you, so even if you do get into enlightenment for selfish reasons, it's about my pain, it's my suffering, something does bring you back, and it comes in the form of the sharing, and I'll give an example. When I first had my experience, I was like, I'm done. Enlightenment for me was being on vacation. I'm done world. Screw you. I'm out of here. I don't have to think anymore. I don't have to seek anymore. I'm done. You could have the world. But life brings you back. Life teaches you. It's constantly teaching you. And what you have to realize is, is you can't be constipated. You can't be stuck. You can't stop this. This energy needs to move through you. And so what you find out is that you want to share just spontaneously. This thing comes out and you want to share. You want to give of yourself. And the only thing that we have to give of ourselves is, is our essence of what we have. And so that's why I think the Bodhisattva vow is something spontaneous. It's something that spontaneously that happens because historically, let's say people that did get enlightened after a certain time, period of time, they do go back. They do want to come back and help people because they realize that's natural. That's all we're doing. And to do that would be, like I said, a form of constipation. We're just blocking because basically all there is is just joy going through you and going through you. And you have to get out of the way because you're like a tube. You're supposed to just be a tube as a catalyst for this energy to go through you. But if you don't have that essence of the Bodhisattva vow, it's more like I said, of a constipation where you're just experiencing all this bliss. And like I said, I'm making an ugly face now because that bliss could just feel like too much energy, just too much of a good thing. Well, you, you know, you say if you get enlightened for selfish reasons, I don't think you can get enlightened. And of course, there's a whole thing of there's no you yeah. which gets enlightened, but you can't get enlightened if there's selfishness there. And what you were saying reminded me of the 23rd Psalm, my cup runneth over. When the cup isn't full, there's this craving, I got to fill my cup. But then once it's full, then it's like, all right, it can't get any fuller. So it naturally spills over and begins to bless the world. I love it. That is it. And by the way, you remind me of something else. I want to emphasize how I think all this is natural. Everything is natural. And the way I see the world, you remember the TV show Fantasy Island? Is that the one where that little guy kept saying, Tattoo! De plane, de yes! I'm glad you don't remember because it gives me the opportunity to explain it for people that um, weren't. I never watched it. I'd see that and I'd turn the channel. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I loved it. I'm, I'm not offended. Fantasy Island, that's actually a really good plot. I think Fantasy Island is a metaphor for Earth, samsara, life. It's a metaphor for it. Basically, what Fantasy Island is, it's an island that you go to and you get your fantasies fulfilled. Just like I said, uh, Alice in Wonderland, she had a fantasy. I just want nonsense. I just want nonsense. You have this fantasy of what nonsense is going to be like, and this will fulfill me, and this desire will fulfill me. So you go to Fantasy Island, and they give you your fantasy. They provide your fantasy. But the show is a very dark show. So by the end of the show, you realize, I was like, oh, my God, I got my fantasy. But it wasn't what I wanted. It created a whole bunch of different circumstances. And now by the end of it, now I fantasize for something different. 
And that is, I think, what Earth is. You come here with a certain fantasy. I want this. I want this. Love is the answer to everything. I just want to have romantic love. Then you come here, and by the end of it, it's like, no, that's not it. Now I just want enlightenment. And that's what we keep doing. Life after life is just like fantasy island over and over again. This will be it. Now I want this. And that thing is going to beget another desire. And the satiation of that desire is going to beget another desire. And I'm not saying this in a bad way because I think it's evolution. I think it's natural, but it's natural that we learn and we recognize and you do get to a certain point that you, like in Alice in Wonderland, you do want to wake up. You've satiated the desire for the nonsense and you want to wake up. And that's when you spontaneously attract teachers into your life, the books, the teachings, your teacher, whatever it is, what philosophy or book, it's your essence. You bring in whatever teacher into your life, whether it be a book or a teacher of your essence, your inner guide is attracting you to an external guide that's going to guide you. But you're attracted to Buddhism for a reason, because that's in your essence. And that is going to now be your guide. The external book is going to be your guide, but it's actually you externalizing it because that is your essence. That's what you're resonating with. You said something about naturalness. You used that word. And you know, a lot of people say, well, you should stop desiring, you should kill desires and this and that. People are at different levels. And it's, I think it's natural for people have, to have desires. And in a way, you could, you could think of desires as stepping stones of progress. They're not going to get you where you think they are in a way, although it's, it's nice to have a good home and nice food and a happy family and all that stuff. But ultimately, we're looking for that infinite fulfillment, which resides in our essence. And so none of these things are going to be ultimately fulfilling. But like I said before, they're icing on the cake. You can have what we might call 200% of life, where if you're just going after the 100% outer stuff, you're never going to be fulfilled. But if there's a balance, like you said earlier, left, right, left, right, you were saying that with regard to knowledge and experience, but it can also be thought of in terms of fulfilling our desires in the outer life, well, I think I'll get my PhD and yeah. I want to win a Nobel Prize or whatever. And at the same time, you're developing your inner life, then you can have that fullness of both. If that is your dharma, if that is your natural tendency. Yeah. I mean, some people are just happy. I'll just go live in a cave and that, that'll be fine for yeah. me. Good. That's good for them. Yeah. But I don't think anyone can be ultimately fulfilled if, unless they're developing both. Perfect. And I'm glad, by the way, I'm really glad you said that about desire, because I think desire, I don't look at desire as a bad thing. I know even in Buddhism, you know, you could read it, interpret it, that's our downfall. But I look at desire as the original dynamic. It's simply attraction. Desire is inevitable because why? What is this world? It's a reflection of the actual world, which is just awareness attracted to itself. So this whole world that we're experiencing in is based on, it's born from attraction. Attraction is the mother. Um, the father was space, the mother was attraction. So in this world, attraction is going to be what drives everything. So desire, I don't look at desire as a bad thing. I think our desires naturally lead us to what we call awakening. And why? Because our desires become more and more refined as we play Fantasy Island. As we go on Fantasy Island, they get more and more refined to where we desire more and more, and we're getting closer and closer to the essence until we experience Now, a different metaphor I'll use is called war games. Now I'm going to go really extreme. What I'm going to describe to you now, you're probably going to even balk at and say, wait a second, people shouldn't be doing this. This was just the stage I had to go through that was necessary. I don't experience this now, but this is a stage I had to go through. And it goes back to what you're talking about, desiring. And all of a sudden I desire, all of a sudden I realized my biggest desire, the only desire, all of my desires got whittled down to one desire. 
one last big desire that I desired more than anything in the world. All of my desire was focused on having one last desire. And that desire was to have no more desires. I wanted that more than anything. I was so sick of myself, Rick. I was so sick of my mind. I was so sick of the moving. I was so sick of the constant I this, I that, the moving. I was done. That's what I sought. I sought to have no more seeking. And that's what I realized. That's what I call the suicide mission. When you just realize that the seeking that I'm seeking is to have no seeking. I want that more than anything just to be done. Okay. So anyway, that gets back to the war games. So what I realized was that what's going on on earth is all of us are one permutation and all these experiences that was happening, I was out in the mountains. So I'm out in nature every day and nature is teaching me and I'm looking at the leaves and I'm seeing how nature is the same and it's different. You look at the leaves, every leaf is the same, but each one is different. So there's all these permutations of life where nature is trying itself in every single way, every single permutation. It's trying this, it's trying that. And what's the best way? What works? This works, that works. We're doing that too as people, everybody without a choice, spontaneously, we're going out in the world. This is the best way to live. You need to be doing this. This is the best way to do it. This is what we should be doing. We should be exercising more. We should be vegetarians. We should be Buddhist, whatever it is. We have a thing of this is the way we should be doing it. And going back to the war games analogy. So there was a movie called War Games where the plot was about the United States government created a computer program to work out every single simulation of a nuclear war, how we could win a nuclear war with Russia. So they developed a program as a simulation, how we could work out every single possibility until we work out a winnable solution, how we could win a nuclear war with Russia. So by the end of the movie, the moral of the story was the only way you could play, the only simulation, the only configuration of all the configurations that work, none of them work except for one configuration. Don't play the game at all. It's the only way. And that's what I meant by the suicide mission. I realized any movement, anything, any desire whatsoever, I was just sick of it. The way I looked at it was everybody was trying to rule the world in their own way. I want to rule by making more Democrat. I want to make it by making it more vegetarian. I want to make it whatever you're trying to rule the world. And what I just realized, I'm not any different than anybody. You know, me pushing non-duality or enlightenment or anything, me favoring anything and thinking any way, one way is better than any way. It's no different in any way. And I just wanted out. I just wanted out from the whole dynamic. So basically what I realized is we could either try to rule the world or we could train our minds so we could live in a world that's ruled by anybody. And to me, I found that more advantageous that really I have my mind here and that's what I could work with. And I'm not going to be dependent upon conditions of the world. The, the conditions of the world could be whatever they want. I can't be dependent upon the conditions. I have to stick with the one thing that I could practice, which is the one thing that's beyond all conditions. And that's when I realized that the war games analogy was just not to play at all, just to not to play at all. And that's why I'm saying when I say that, I could see how somebody would say it as you're not participating in life, you're blocking or you're getting out. It was basically just me not believing in any of my beliefs anymore. I would acknowledge the beliefs that they would come up, but I just wouldn't believe the beliefs. They would they could spontaneously appear, but I wouldn't believe them. I would just recognize them for what they were, spontaneous occurrences, spontaneous beliefs that are happening, and I wouldn't believe the beliefs. I would acknowledge the belief. I would acknowledge the identification or belief, but I wouldn't actually believe the belief. What you're saying reminds me of, that analogy of it's it's easier to put shoes on than it is to pave the earth with leather. 
I love it. Yes, I've heard that a different way. You have to put on slippers. It's easier to put on slippers than the carpet right. the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the whole thing is that's what we find ourselves doing is trying to adjust the world to accommodate us. But what you say about not believing beliefs and also about desires, I don't know if anybody is ultimately free of desire, but maybe it depends on how we define desire. I don't think, yeah, you're right. So I don't Ramana think Maharshi, are. if he got really, really cold, he would desire a, a blanket or if exactly. he got hungry, he would desire food or if he got tired, he would desire sleep. And it might not be the ripping obsession yes. type of desire that some people have, but it would still be an impulse that yes. motivates your behavior, I should think. Absolutely. You're drawing the distinction. Like what I said, desire is always going to be there because it's a reflection of the natural, the original dynamic, which is attraction. Everything that we're looking at is a result of attraction. So attraction is always going to be there. There's always going to be the desire. What we call desire in a more way that we'd say we want to overcome, we'd be more like a, a craving. A more yeah. of a sense of a dissatisfaction. <laughs> and I guess it comes back to more of a belief. That's what I mean about not believing your beliefs. I know I need all these things. I know I have all these things, but I just don't believe them. They're just happening. I think it also depends on how much inner fulfillment there is. If there's a lot of inner fulfillment, then your whole existence doesn't hinge upon the attainment of this or that particular desire. I've used this analogy many times. Let's say someone's really poor. He has $10 to his name. Someone gives him five bucks and it's like, oh my God, this is incredible, five bucks. Or he loses five bucks. Oh, I just lost half my fortune. It really throws him one way or the other. But if a person is a multimillionaire, you know, he can gain or lose. I read an article a few weeks ago about this guy who's a multi-billionaire and he's up and down millions of dollars every day. You know, he's, he's like, 80 something years old. He sits there from 12 hours a day playing the stock market, but it doesn't really rock his world that much because there's such a yes. foundation. So if the cup is full, if we're really fulfilled, then the desires, the, the attainment of them, the lack of attainment of them, they're just ripples on the surface. I love it. That's an that's a absolute perfect way to put it. Because basically, that's another thing I've noticed too. As you go through life, we recognize it more and more recognition. You just realize it's the same thing. It just goes from uh, gross to subtle. Everything that, let's say, uh, my wife is dealing with in her practice, I'm also dealing with just on, let's say, a more subtle level. There's not a single thing that anybody in the world that could describe whatever they're going through. I could relate to every bit of it, even if it's just on more of a subtle level. It's always the same thing. It's just getting more and more refined. And that's natural. That's where we're being guided. Where we're, I feel like we're being funneled. I feel like natural. I feel like life is a natural mechanism that was wound up, and we're just having the unwinding. And it's just natural. And everything that's happening is spontaneous and natural. And it can be trusted. I think that's the main thing: is that we can trust whatever's happening, so we could surrender to it. The most important thing for me of anything for people who are listening is the surrendering part. I don't think there's anything more essential as far as a practice, as far as a philosophy, as far as a way of life, of just surrendering, which is just not to hold on. Simple as that. Surrender is not anything more deeper, more profound than, than just not holding on from that deep trust, from the essence of your experience. And that's why I treasure experience so much because that is your essence. That's what everything is to be based on is your actual experience of your mind. And that we should just always try to bring our attention back to our mind. And by the way, I didn't even get to my the biggest vision. But let me make a segue. So basically what I'm talking about now is the surrendering. Getting back to the story. So after I had that profound experience of seeing behind me, I saw that I was nothing. So I definitely saw that I was nothing, but yet still the world continued. 
So now the next phase of my life was continuing in this world when I saw for a fact that it's just the void. There's nothing but void and we're just appearances on a screen, but yet my world continues. So now my world continued where this undeniable reality, but now I'm faced with, like I said, in the world where I have my daughter and I have work and I have all these things. And I'm starting to contemplate the relationship between the one and the many. I'm looking at my daughter and like, how am I not aware of her thoughts? If I'm the one, if I'm everything, how am I pulling this off that I'm, I'm not aware of her thoughts? And I became obsessed with this for <laughs> a long time, just studying the nature of reality. Of how can we do this? How could we pull this off to where I know that I'm nothing? Here's a good but, analogy for you. I have a light bulb here and there's a refrigerator in the other room and they're both running on the same electricity, but the light bulb doesn't know what the refrigerator is thinking. Ah, wow. That is beautiful. I love it. Kind of like our bodies with the brain and the heart and the lungs and everything. Yeah. So it was kind of poetic because the actual experience um, actually happened with my daughter sitting on my lap. So one day I come home from work and I'm sitting on the back deck, staring at the mountains with my daughter uh, on my lap. And I'm sitting there just innocently looking at her like, wow, it's, it's so weird how I'm not privy to your thoughts. I know I'm everything, but I'm looking at you. I have no idea what's going on in your mind. All of a sudden, as I'm in the middle of this contemplation, because like we're always being shown everything. That's what I'm saying. We're always being taught. We're always being shown. And in the next second, my whole perspective switched. And I was seeing from behind my daughter's eyes. I was no longer seeing from my eyes. I was seeing from her eyes. And as I was seeing from her eyes, I don't know if it's because of you know what's going on in her mind, but it was just quiet, spacious. And then from there, it backed up even further to where I saw that I was not just behind her eyes, but I was actually behind every single eye in reality. And that's the book cover. But you um, still didn't know everybody's thoughts. Not at all. Not a single thought, because when you're experiencing everything at once, None of it is individual. It's in the context of what it is. It's everything at once. So in order for you to have individual experiences, like I said, that focus is going to have to come down here. Let me pull up my book cover again. So this is basically what I saw in my diamond vision. I backed up and saw that I was the eye behind all those eyes, but you don't see it really as detailed as that, because in order to do that, you'd have to focus on to come to that. You're just broadly coming back and seeing from an impersonal perspective that you're the awareness behind all that, the noticing all that, this is being created, like all this stuff that's being created within that sphere. That's being created within that sphere. That's being created within that sphere. It's basically all of your thoughts and your imagination are, are creating this thing. So when I'm seeing that I'm experiencing it as the whole. So all the little things you got to think, this is all made from specifics, colors and shapes and things like that. So you're not experiencing like that as the whole. So you're seeing everything all at the same time, but not every single little one individually. Because in order to do that, you have to focus on the one. Otherwise, be omniscient, and for that, and human bodies are not capable of it. Sure, we're all the same consciousness, but we're not all the same perceptual apparatus. Yes, yes, exactly. And and that's what I was showing. And that's why I thought it was so beautiful and poetic that the answer that I got was it showed me. It didn't tell me, it showed me that you are everything. And, and that's when I started to realize that's why we have these, um, these folds, this, that folding of awareness that, uh, to, that, that came from the initial attraction to itself. 
That's what actually causes the black hole of our world to make us think that we have separation. So all the separation that we feel is, um, well, that's what they mean by illusory. It's an appearance. And the way I'll explain that is actually with the, the last fourth, the final vision that I had. The final vision that I had was I was actually at my computer and somebody, I was talking to somebody on the computer and they asked me a question about enlightenment, about awakening. And I, for, for whatever reason, I guess just to better position myself to contemplate, I sat up and I contemplated um, what they thought of enlightenment, like the word enlightenment, like what even they mean by that. I was trying to just, you know, go into the space of what I know what they mean by enlightenment. And when I did that, the whole world disappeared. Everything was gone, pure voidness again. And then I saw everything form slowly. So from the black voidness, is just a subtle movement of the blackness. Just a subtle movement, just blackness, and then maybe subtly a blackness upon blackness, just a contrast of blackness upon blackness, and then more contrast of blackness upon blackness. And these contrasts of blackness of shaping this, it's basically activity. Basically what I was experiencing was the void is not just nothing, it's active, it's percolating, it's um, it's alive, it's raging, it's, it's um, but with potential. I guess it's a better, the best way to say it is, the emptiness that everyone's referring to is its potential. It's not just a dead, vacant nothing. It's an actual potentia of, of a, uh, and, and my, the subtitle of the book I call it a raging nothing. It's a raging nothing, raging with potential, just ready to burst upon our scene, which is this. Okay. The way physics puts it, by the way, is that there's more potential energy in a cubic centimeter of empty space than there is in the whole expressed manifest universe. Wow. Ah, oh, that's powerful. That is true. And that's, that's another thing too, is I, I, I experienced that the whole universe, everything in reality, it's not big. I experienced it's, it's a tiny sphere. It's the tiniest little, di- and to even say it's tiny is not correct, but it's basically imploding. It's basically in, uh, I don't know. I don't want to get um, out on the weeds on that, but um, so, okay. So from the voidness, as I was seeing the shuffling, so the shuffling of the blackness because blackness upon blackness until the contrast could form, I guess what we would see is like browns or grays or some, some type of forms of shadows. And from that, I noticed the churning of the movement was turning into shapes and then colors. And then all of a sudden the shapes and colors started to take on objects, but the objects didn't take any meaning yet. They were just objects. Like you could just know they're objects. And then finally, boom, okay, there's objects and now these objects are taking meaning. There's clothes. And all of a sudden the clothes and the closet, these clothes are in the closet. Oh, there's clothes in the closet. There's your daughter's closet. You're in your daughter's room. You're in a person. And you were not a person a second ago. And I was seeing all that. And what I saw, the vision that I saw was that all we are, the way I I saw it was like an aware string. Like all of awareness is like, let's say an aware string. And it becomes attracted to itself and it forms a loop. And again, I'll go back to my book to show. All right. So what I just saw was that all we are is awareness and that awareness is an aware string. But the nature, so that's the basis of what it is. It's an aware string. But the path, what it does, it is it invaginates due to the power of attraction to itself. And then when that shape bends over enough, it's going to take over a, a complete black hole. And so basically awareness, so just imagine now taking one piece of string and it forms one loop, that's Rick. Then that same string forms another loop, that's me. Another loop, that's Ramana Maharshi. So there's just infinite, infinite loops. And all death is, is that loop coming undone. 
boom, now you're right back to the uh, flat screen that you were. Here's a cool quote that I wanted to bring up. This is from chapter nine of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna speaking, Krishna supposedly God incarnate. He says, curving back within myself, I create again and again. That's it. This is all literal. That's the whole thing that blows my mind. All these things are literal. This is not symbolic. All these things are literally happening. The bending back, the appearances, the dreaming. This is all literal. And by the way, Rick, that's kind of like the most important thing I want to share that, I, that I've been wanting to share with everybody for this last couple months is how real this is. And, and what I mean by that, the reason I want to say that is after my experience in 2002, I never read any books afterwards. I never watched any spiritual videos. And even before 2002, I was not a very well-read person. I only read a very few books, very specific Zogshen and Zen books. But afterwards, then when I put all the books down, I have 20 years of experiences. Then just this last year, my wife took a really keen interest in the Zogshen teachings. And so because of that, I started to relive them again. I started to go back and want to share her stuff. So I'm reading stuff. And now for the first time in 20 years, I'm reading the Zogshen books constantly. I, I, I'm listening to them 24 hours a day. I'm reading them. And what I'm realizing is there's something really real about it. I don't know what came first, but it's almost as if like they chicken, implanted. Chicken came first, and then there was an egg. Ah, no, you solved it. Thank you, Rick. <laughs> All right. I hope we got that. I hope someone heard that. <laughs> but I felt like just that seed, like the, the seed that I got from Buddhism, just the basic essence of it. Like I said, I was not well read, not well read. I didn't know nothing about it. The pages of Zoshin and Buddhism that I read would be counted in the hundreds. You know what I mean? It's very little, but the seed was so potent that 20 years later, when I come back and start reading it, it's making me feel like I was plagiarizing them. Like, oh my God, all these experiences that I thought I was having by myself and I'm writing about them, they were all there in these teachings. And you can even say, well, you read the teachings. So even subconsciously, even though you didn't know you read it, it's there. And I think that's true. I think that these teachings, all the teachings, by the way, it doesn't have to be Zogshen, it could be Advaita, it could be any non-dual teaching. The, the essence teachings, the heart teachings are so real. They're so real. There's something beyond time that have been here that the main thing that I want to share with people is that this is real. Everything that people are talking about the, with Buddhism and Advaita, this is a real thing. It's actually happening now. You practice these things there's a lineage behind it. There's a history of it. Basically, the way I look at it was these people, we've all been, let's call it reincarnation for the lack of a better word. We've been repeating this. We've been spinning our wheels, being reborn in this virtual reality dream over and over and over again. The way I look at the Buddhist or the Hindus is some group of people, they decided to start mapping it out and start to create lineages so they could pass it down. So they say, okay, well, remember being here. Let's start writing this down so we have this thread. So in the next lives, we have this people that we have this living dharma, this living teaching of this collective knowledge to where we're aware of ourselves before death and after death, and we're bridging it together. And um, I, think it's, I think it's real. And like I said, the reason I, I keep going back to saying it's real is because I read very, very little, and I live my life. And, I, and, I, and by the way, my essence, my heart was to not have any philosophy, was to not have any teachings. I, I've never considered myself a Buddhist. Never, I mean, even though Buddhist, I give it credit for everything. It's my heart, it's my essence. I give, I owe everything to Buddhism, but never one second would I have ever considered myself a Buddhist because the nature of Zogchen 
just doesn't lend itself to you thinking about yourself as uh, anything. Uh, it's just more beliefs. Like what, uh, Zoksh, a famous Dzogchen master said, why would you call yourself a Buddhist? Isn't being what you already are enough? Like, why do you have to add anything? Just what, You're just adding more crap to it. But my basic point was that I was always just looking for the essence. And I was looking for the essence and that because of my essence, I was attracted to the Dzogchen teachings because that's essence. Buddhism is a huge religion. If you're more on the religious path, you know, learning, then you're going to be attracted to the Theravada teachings, the Buddhist teachings. One thing I want to get to before I run out of time, and, and yeah. there may be some things you want to get to before I run out of time, and that is a lot of people listening to this today might be thinking, well, yeah, but anything that comes as an experience isn't the ultimate reality because the ultimate reality doesn't come and go, but experiences come and go. So we can have profound experiences, but that's not awakening because awakening is that which you, which never started and will never end. And, you know, Ramana and Papaji and people like that have spoken in this way, but it does seem that 20 years ago or so you had this big breakthrough that caused an abiding stage or shift, which didn't come and go. And you called that enlightenment. I did. Yeah, I would not now. Now that I'm studying the Buddhist teachings, I would not. Because before I looked at enlightenment as a general word that any of us could use, you could be enlightened to the pizza shop. I was enlightened to who I really was, my true nature. But now that I'm reading Buddhism, they hold enlightenment as waking up, waking up. Like I said, rainbow body. So no, I much bigger. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's the way I, I tend to reserve that word. And we should, because that puts in the context of what it actually is. It should have that seriousness of totally, totally waking up, because that's what it is, totally waking up. And by the way, like I said, that's not what I'm interested in, because when I look up at totally waking up, what I'm actually describing is the rainbow body. Like, if we really want to describe the difference between lucid dreaming, which is what I would say I'm experiencing, I know this is a dream, but yet the dream's persisting. The rainbow body, we have a historical document of people that they know it's dreaming so much, poof. They pop out of the dream. I'm not interested in that, Rick. I'm not interested whatsoever. As you, I'm just interested in service. I'm interested in awakening, continually awakening, continually practicing, so I could be of service to the most. And to be honest with you, I don't believe that there's a final awakening. Even the rainbow body, I think that they're going to wake up to find out there's just a whole other level, a whole other short across or something like that. But I don't know and I don't care. We know who we are. We know what our true essence is. And we're not in control. And we're not here to try to control. We're not here to try to want to go to heaven, to try to want this or want that. The only thing you should want is just to want to serve. And you are serving. You're already doing what you want just by being you and being your suffering and your learning and everything. That is your service, your share. And I would say... I'm not even attached to there being a rainbow body. Maybe that's just a mythological thing. Exactly. And there aren't any rainbow bodies. I don't care. Correct. But the ride we're on is really wonderful. And you were saying earlier that life is preparation for death. I also think death is preparation for life. If you read Michael Newton's books, for instance, he regressed people hypnotically back to the period between lives. And it's basically a school you go to for a while and you review everything, you learn things, and then you work it out what your next life is going to be. So this other point I wanted to get to, and you've kind of just answered it because you were saying in your book, well, I was enlightened, but then my wife threatened to leave me and I got depressed and I started drinking and I gained a hundred pounds. And I thought, wait a minute, that 
couldn't have been enlightenment because <laughs> could a person who was really enlightened as I would want to use the word undergo all that sort of turmoil. But you kind of just resolve the whole issue. But maybe there's something you'd like to comment upon about how you had this profound awakening, but then the shit hit the fan for a while. And, you know, you had to learn through that to get to a more mature stage. I touched upon it earlier when I said that I think everything is the same. It's just whether it's gross levels or subtle levels. Mm-hmm. I think that's all there is. Everything's always going to be the same, whether it's a, a gross level or a subtle level. And so what I experienced, what I described in book two, that came years after the awakening experience that I had where I said, where I gave up on everything and I was no longer practicing and I was no longer doing anything. I think that is a result of the bodhisattva vow that brings us back. I think that all of life is an expansion and a contraction. And the contraction is just to collect more stuff and to bring it up. That's like the true bodhisattva vow, like a heartbeat. It swoops up, but then it comes back down for one last collection to bring up more. So I think that's a natural process that this is the way the Buddha described it. The Buddha said there's only bliss and purification. So basically, Whenever you're going through something, as I described in the second book, which could be a whole other talk, it was intense madness and suffering, the worst, worst, worst thing. But what I knew was that I was just the space for it. This was not to be denied. This was here. It was natural. It was real. It was here to be experienced. That was ever here to be experienced. It's not just the good stuff. What was here to be experienced was my weight, my heaviness, my experiences, all my thoughts, all my madness, my resistance to the world. That is what I had to sit with. And specifically, it was the heaviest thing in the world, because as you mentioned, it was my wife leaving me. It was my daughter. It was literally the most painful thing in the world. And I could not turn away from it. I had no ability to turn away from it. I lost the muscle to turn away from stuff, to reject it. I had to be there. And that's what the Buddha refers to as the purification. Uh-huh. So that, it, that horrible, horrible thing that I could write about, and I tried to capture this horrible thing because it was, it was the bleakest, bleakest thing, but that is the purification. You don't turn away from it. You don't turn away from the black hole. You don't turn away from the blackness. You are the space for all of that. And if you're not going to be the healing space for all that, then what is? Yeah, that's great. I really like that. And I I really get what you're saying. So there are these cycles and very often a profound awakening precedes a huge purging or processing of gunk that was cleverly hidden that we can no longer hide. And then that has to be processed in order for our evolution to continue. And I once uh, heard a teacher say, someone asked him, well, what happens if you totally purify yourself? If all the hidden stuff has been purged and and, you know, released, then what? Uh, are you done? He said, no. Then you start taking on cosmic stress, yes. the, the stress yes. of the world. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly because you are the world. There's nothing. And that's what I'm saying. These just go from gross to subtle forms. Now in my practice, my practice is I'm only looking out for my defilements, for my problems, for my attachments, for my things. I'm only looking for that. Why? Because that's where the freedom is. The recognition in this, if I recognize any type of attachment or thing like that, that is to me is a liberation because you're recognizing it's liberated upon your recognition. So for me, the highest state is not the absence of bad or the presence of good. 
It is that recognition when you're recognizing your own ignorance, your own defilement, that moment, that slight moment of a subtle aha, like there I am, there I am. That recognition is spontaneously freeing in the moment just by the recognizing of it. No judgment of it because there's no thought that it shouldn't be this way because it's all natural. This contraction, attraction is natural. So there's not this sense of, oh, I should be doing that or I should be doing that. I recognize it's doing that. Thank you. And the recognition is freeing. And you're just so grateful for the recognition of it because the recognition is showing you what it is right there. There is no sense of, oh, that's right. I shouldn't be doing that. Everything is being freed in every moment that we're experiencing. Even your thoughts are just awareness being freed. It's the unbounded expression of the infinite through all these things. And now here we are on the other side, trying to make them go away (laughs) (laughs) and get back to that great space. Now we're trying to get back to the great space that we actually are. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you still have a job, right? Are you, are you still asleep? I do. Yep, I still, I still work at a sleep lab, which is perfect. Uh, you have have to stay up all night while people sleep. I do. The universe has set me up in a strange life because I've been living my life on the opposite of everybody else. Like I work at nights and I only work three days a week. So I have really long weekends, but when I'm working, when I get out of work, like I would do my grocery shopping. So the stores are empty. The roads are empty. So I'm sleeping. So my whole life's kind of been like that where I'm walking into stores and they're empty and everything's always been quiet. My life has been a very uh, quiet life. I get to work by myself. So I think that my reality was just set up in such a way that it's conducive to this. And then you sleep in the daytime, presumably, uh, as much as yes. you need to. Yeah. And then are you doing anything that people watching this could plug into? I mean, webinars or chat groups? Or uh, I was, and like maybe that? I'll, st- I say no, but I say yes. Lately, as I said, I've been more interested in just being a student. I'm really, 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 really into learning and learning. So yes, I do have a website. Uh, it's called This Aware Space. You could find my books and videos and everything. But if anybody wants a free book, you could also email me and I'll send you a PDF. If you're interested in seeing anything or learning more, just look up Mark Levitt on YouTube or go to my website, which is This Aware Space. I did have a coaching thing that I had up there, but I stopped. It was just too overwhelming. I didn't realize how much of a need there. And I have a full-time job. But the way I put it was it's a case-by-case basis. I, I just realized something that I just realized. I'm only interested in really talking to people that are truly interested in the, the waking up aspect of all this. The people that truly are readered in and on what is this? What am I? And I want to wake up rather than the just to not want to suffer because all of us don't want to suffer. None, nobody wants to suffer. But really, my thing is I find that the only way you can truly deal with suffering is by understanding. So I can't part myself from understanding is everything. The the view is understanding. Everything is understanding. Understanding is all. All the pain, all the suffering, everything that we're experiencing, understanding, I do believe is the root of everything. And so because of that, I really only want to talk to people that also share that, that awakening or Getting to the root bottom, seeing the truth for what it is and not just getting pleasure is more important. Seeing the truth for whatever it is, is more important than just ending your your suffering. I guess that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I'll have a page up on BatGap. Okay. I'll link to your website and your YouTube channel and your books if they're on Amazon or anything. And um, 
people can keep an eye on what you're doing. And, you know, either you're talking to people or you're not talking to people, whatever. It might change over the years. But, oh, um, and to answer your question, yes. I was doing videos, podcast, I guess. And I, I, I'm getting a lot of inspiration. So I do imagine myself doing that. So, yes, I do. Good. Did you get any more pugs? No, those pugs, as you read my book, that was such a horrible, gut-wrenching, painful experience that both me and my wife were not going to have dogs, period, for at least a couple of years. We would do everything for the pugs. We would travel with them. We wouldn't want to go without them. So we're going to use the next few years to be able to travel and to feel untethered. But yeah, I definitely feel like in my future, the pugs will be back. Some other pugs. Good. Maybe the same pugs, reincarnated. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pugged them. On the one hand, it is hard to travel and all if you have pets. I mean, it really ties you down. But if that's not an issue, then I've talked to people who've... My wife ran the dog adoption program at the local animal shelter here for about eight years. And sometimes a pet will die and they'll say... I'm never going to have another dog because I don't want to go through the heartbreak and all that. But it's like, hey, there's so many dogs in shelters and dogs are being euthanized and just get another dog already. They don't well, live as long you, as you do. Huh? I'm glad you said that because that is what we do. We would just rescue the elderly dogs. When we do get dogs, that's actually was the last two we got was the rescue dog. But that is exactly when we do that. And that's going to take care of both things because it'll be an elderly dog. We're still doing the interview here. Are you? So it's not like a 10-year a, a, a commitment. So I do agree with that. And to rescue the ones that are like elderly and the ones that don't have a home that are yeah, most... And, and the most rewarding too, by the way, are those rescue ones. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, speaking of dogs, we're going to... Take them for a walk now. <laughs> well, thank you. Hey, I got to say, I'm not used to doing these talks. So I really appreciate it. This has been um, incredible. So I really appreciate the opportunity. And um, I'd like to speak to you again, you know, sometime too. So uh, thank you for everything. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we'll be in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everybody. And thanks again, Rick. Yeah. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. Next week, I'll be interviewing a guy named Andrew Holacek. I think it might be Zogjen that he's into also, um, and lucid dreaming and all kinds of stuff. So I've got about 14 hours worth of his books to listen to. I don't know whether I'll make it through them all. You can hear the dogs are getting excited about our impending walk. So we'll end it. Thanks, and uh, I really enjoyed getting to know you. Thank you, Rick. I really appreciate it.